Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life. I am Michelle Leek, your host for today, and I am joined by my co-host, Bill Feinerfrock. Hello. Movement is Life is a health equity-oriented collaboration with representation from numerous medical organizations forming our steering committee. Today, it's our honor and distinct pleasure to welcome some of those members to today's very special and important discussion. So I'd like to first welcome Dr. Augustus White, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Harvard Medical School and author. Welcome, Dr. White. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be here, particularly with such a distinguished group of colleagues to discuss this very important topic. I'd also like to introduce Dr. Jonathan Silver. Dr. Silver is the Chief Physician Associate at Kings County Hospital. So welcome, Dr. Silver. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me on your cast here. You're quite welcome. Also from um, Kings County Hospital joining us is Physician Associate and Master of Science, Ismail Abdul Wahid. Hi, Abdul. Hey, Michelle. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Hadia Green-Guerrera, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Welcome, Hadia. Thanks for having me. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Melissa Walker. Dr. Walker is a family medicine physician and assistant professor of osteopathic principles. Welcome, Dr. Walker. Thank you, Michelle. Good to be here. And last but not least, I'd like to welcome, warm welcome to uh, Dr. Ramon Jimenez. Dr. Jimenez is an orthopedic surgeon and mentor. So welcome to the entire panel. It's a good day from California. So we're going to talk about resilience um, on today's uh, podcast. And psychologists define resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, in the face of trauma, tragedy, or significant sources of stress. For example, family and relationship problems or issues, serious health concerns, or workplace and financial stressors. In other words, resilience is the capacity to recover quickly from such difficulties. We all have resilience and we all need resilience. Patients need resilience as they face medical challenges. Healthcare providers need resilience considering the demands of their profession. And in the context of diversity and inclusion, healthcare providers of color need perhaps an extra dose of resilience. Today, we will explore why that might be so as our panelists share challenges they have experienced and the role that resilience has played in helping them to thrive and flourish. So my first question is for our friend, Dr. Augustus White someone who has furthered our understanding of unconscious bias and who brings a very humanistic approach to this subject. I might also add that Dr. White is the acclaimed author of Seeing Patients 
and he recently published a new book called Overcoming. So Dr. White, would you share with our audience your thoughts on how you see resilience as being deeply connected to our basic humanity and also the importance of fostering empathy? Well, those are obviously important questions. And uh, resilience is, is a gift of our humanity. We all have potential as part of our basic human nature and construct and our psychological makeup uh, to be able to be resilient. And of course, resilience in the simple terms means being able to bounce back, bounce back after adversity. And uh, it's an extremely valuable tool. And it's estimated that 90% of us are more at some time or another in our life will have a substantial tragedy, a substantial problem. And uh, we want to learn to connect the potential for our resiliency when that sad situation may occur. That is uh, kind of a theme that we have. And the problems in, in terms of putting this in a healthcare setting is that unfortunately, there's a tremendous propensity for a number of groups of us in the society to receive not such good healthcare, disparate healthcare, inferior healthcare. And uh, those problems are very challenging and we many of us are all working to change that. But while we're waiting, as we push back within our various spheres of influence to change these unfortunate health care realities, we need to be resilient so that we can go on with some decent quality of life, A, and B, the energy and the fortitude to push back against these terrible, inhumane realities in our society. Dr. White, thank you so much for that um, overview. I would like to bring Dr. Hadia Green Guerrera into the discussion. Dr. Guerrera, you have researched this subject and noticed that there are discernible patterns in coping strategies among medical professionals. Are there different coping mechanisms among different populations of professions? And more specifically, what does your research say about strategies for dealing with microaggressions, specifically in the healthcare environment? Thank you so much for the question, Michelle. I'm finding amongst my peers, and by peers, I mean anyone in the healthcare field, from pharmacy to medicine to nursing and um, allied health or rehab, that we all are set up in different ways as far as the potential that Dr. Augustus White re relate to, and that we, we all have an innate amount of resilience or reserve, and that some of us, because of the different sectors of the United States that we belong to by demographic or racial categorizing, are already set up and told to protect themselves in a, in a way that will help facilitate their progress and ultimately success in life. Some of the respondents to the research I was doing showed the environment was very important, right? So whether you're a practitioner in the military or a student going through the military process of becoming 
a physician, a therapist, or other. And also your um, ethnic background was important. So for example, there were some who were of Asian background and they tended to use the feedback that they got that we might um, call microaggressions and internalize it as something that, oh, the difficulty I'm experiencing has to do something with me, so I need to work harder or just you know bury your head and push through it. Whereas um, other racial ethnic backgrounds, particularly in, in Black medical or healthcare providers, had a different coping mechanism, meaning they would actually speak to another peer if they had that option um, when, or a mentor once they made them. So there was less of an internal, like, this is my problem. It was a, almost an immediate recognition that this micro or macroaggression is, is happening from externally to me, which kind of puts the person in an ongoing battle as opposed to the person who takes it and internalizes it and says, oh, this is something about me that I have to fix and then just pushes forward. So I think what's important to take from that, not it isn't just the, re, um, the coping and the resiliency, is that we, we make choices and the support networks around people. So the more structured the environment, the more successful the candidates were in their professional lives. What I'm taking away is that it's a combination of the inherent resiliency that's within us, as Dr. White mentioned, coupled with the environment that sets us up to be the most successful in dealing with challenges, be they microaggressions or otherwise. So in keeping with that theme, let's bring in a couple of our other colleagues and let me set it up a little bit. I did some research of my own in terms of uh, physician associates and the demographics related to physician associates in the United States. And I discovered that among physician associates, 60% of them are women, while 33% of them are men. In addition, I discovered that the most common ethnicity among physician associates is white, which makes up like 71% of all physician associates, compared to roughly 11% of physician associates are Asian, 10.5% um, are Hispanic or Latino, and about 5% are African-American or Black. So I would start with Ismal. In our meeting to prepare for this podcast, you mentioned that your patients who look like you, African-American, those patients that look like you are responding very well to you and that you are really bringing that cultural competency piece and concordance. Is that part of resilience for you, seeing those positive patient responses to you as an African-American healthcare provider? as a male healthcare provider. Talk to us a little bit about that experience and what that has meant to you. Um, I just want to say, um, like of that subset you said, you know, 5% of the profession are African-Americans, obviously a smaller fraction now are African-American males. And like I said, as a provider, <clears throat> patients definitely take notice. So when they see a black male provider, you know, they see it's a kind of rare occurrence and they're very receptive towards it. Well, working Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, uh, majority of the patients or service by the hospital are, are black and brown patients. 
So like I said, when they finally see someone who looks like them, they're very receptive to the care they get. It's interesting because um, you know they've done studies um, where they have providers who see patients of the same ethnic or racial background. Um, patients respond much better in terms of medication adherence, as far as building rapport, as far as treatment outcomes when they have someone who looks like them. I'm not trying to say, say it's a black patient or a white provider that there isn't any difference in care. I think there's a standard of care. I think that the biggest thing is patients have a different level of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the patient has that perception of that they're getting high, higher quality care, um, they're going to be much more adherent, again, with all those treatment plans and, and it's better outcomes for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it, it's definitely uh, a nice feeling that patients have been receptive when they see someone like me, and, and it's very gratifying that um, I make an impact. And especially in the community that has such a disparity in healthcare, it's very nice seeing that come full circle. For sure. So let's talk about the flip side of that. Have you encountered patients and or staff that are not as receptive to you as an African-American um, and male healthcare professional. And if you have, what are some of the strategies that you have used to maintain your resilience in the face of that? Yeah, I can honestly say um, since I've been practicing, I haven't like seen any overt questioning or disregard for me as a healthcare provider. It might be a small few instances where maybe some of my second guess what I have to say. Um, not really sure if that's attributed to my racial background or ethnic background, but if, if that ever does happen, um, you know, you just have to be respectful and assure the patient that I'm well-trained, I have appropriate credentials. Like I said, if they run something about someone else, they can seek a second opinion. But overall, um, I haven't faced anything that's been blatant over. And I think that's a sign of um, that times are changing and that people respect providers of different backgrounds and ethnicities. And they realize that diversity in healthcare is important to everybody. And it allows for patients and providers to receive better care. Well, I certainly appreciate that, Ismail, very much. I think that we have made progress, uh, but I still think we have a ways to go. But I'm glad for our audience to hear that you have had an overwhelmingly positive experience. And even when someone might question you, the way that you're framing it in terms of be respectful and just move on, um, I think that's a very good message for, for our audience to hear. Dr. Silver, I'd like to just talk with you a little bit. You've mentioned to us uh, the shortage of Black males in your profession, and we heard the stats just a bit ago. But you you mentioned that that may be due to bias and selection, right? Recruitment and selection. So something that is important to you has been to be a part of these selection committees at, the, at your organization and elsewhere, and to encourage young Black men to consider a career as a physician associate. So could you share with us a bit more about your experiences and the work that you are doing to address challenges and to advance the profession? Yes, I will. Thank you, Michelle, for the question. That's an excellent question. Um, I, this is my actual 30th year being a PA. Mm-hmm. And over the 30 years, I have seen very, very little growth from mm-hmm. Black men in our profession. So I say that to say I have taken it upon myself to do something about that as a one individual. I teach at uh, two different universities. I made a conscious effort 
to be part of the admission committee process in the evaluation of all the candidates that propose an application to the PA programs. As well as being on the committee, I am a mentor to the students who are in the program to keep them going and keep them as a strong candidate. But the work that I am most proud of is working in the high schools and the junior high school systems to encourage young black men to pursue a career in medicine. As I sit on the committees that select these young men of color, I see all the different biases that are proposed to keep us out of the system. One of the things my mother taught me as a young man is to be part of the solution, you had to be at the table making the decisions. And I wanted to be at that table making the decisions on selecting these young black men to be part of a PA program. And I can honestly say, I think I have made a difference, but I'm not finished with my work yet. Very good. And you are so true. I think the other thing that's so important about those selection um, committees, not only to have um, a diverse uh, group of individuals, uh, both uh, racially, ethnically, gender diversity, age diversity, etc. But I think candidates uh, that are diverse coming before those uh, committees, they feel more comfortable and if they're feeling more comfortable, they can really perform very well through that interview process, right? If they see someone that looks like them that can relate to them. So I appreciate um, you commenting on your experiences in that regard. So I'm gonna turn it over to my co-host, um, Mr. Bill Feinerbrock to uh, move us into the next uh, round of questions for our panelists. Bill, please. Thanks, Michelle. And thanks everybody for uh, spending some time with us today. I'd like to uh, bring uh, Dr. Walker and Dr. Jimenez into the conversation. And Dr. Walker, you are uh, not only an African-American, but you're a female. And so in, in both instances, uh, you're a minority within the medical profession uh, as an osteopathic uh, physician. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about some of the experiences you have had, uh, whether it's as a woman in a male-dominated profession or as African-American in a Caucasian-dominated profession, and some of the things that you've done to try and deal with some of those uh, areas where grit or resilience was uh, an important part of your response? Sure, thanks, Bill, for that question. Um, one of the things that I would say, um, more so as a, as a practicing physician, I have had some issues, but I will tell you, and, and going uh, to what uh, Dr. Silver had said previously, in the training aspect of, of medicine, I often tell the story, I trained in Chicago. I'm from rural Louisiana, but I trained in Chicago, Illinois. And I probably experienced more racism uh, in Chicago, Illinois, than I had ever experienced in rural Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And initially, I thought it was because of uh, just being in the medical field. And as you mentioned, I'm an osteopathic physician, and we know that uh, osteopathic medicine had been closed. I will give you some stats. At my medical school, Midwestern, uh, I attended school there in the uh, late 90s, and the school historically uh, never had, I think, any more than two African-Americans in a class, and the school was 100 years old at that time. 
Wow. So it's not only in the practice of medicine, but it's also in the training of physicians. And, and uh, as been stated before, uh, even getting, you know, underrepresented minorities into professional schools, you know, whether it's uh, uh, PA schools or, or medical schools. And so I experienced more there than I have, honestly, as a practicing physician. Uh, as it relates to resilience, uh, I've been thinking about this even when asked to be uh, a part of this panel. And so I was thinking about, you know, what makes me resilient? I know that we all have some internal things that go, you know, that we've been given, we were born with genetically and all that kind of stuff. We've been raised by parents who taught us, you know, certain things. But I will also say that uh, something that I made a practice, I keep good friends and family close. Because when people who judge me that don't really know me, I reach out to folks who really do know me, <laughs> people who don't care that I'm a doctor, but they know me and the integrity of my heart. And I use those people to keep me grounded, but also keep me afloat. Mm-hmm. You know, they remind me of just who I am, what I have in me. So during the times that I feel most challenged, by external uh, forces and people, I look to the folks that I keep close to me, and those are good friends and family. Dr. Jimenez, uh, anything um, you'd care to share in terms of experiences you had and and tips or ideas, this idea of resilience and grit and how you've uh, dealt with different challenges you've experienced in your life? Thanks for asking me uh, uh, to do this. Uh, As you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, and let me tell you a personal story that uh, uh, has happened to me, which I guess you could define it as microaggression. But I was uh, chief of staff of the Thousand Physician Hospital in San Jose, where I was born and raised. And uh, one particular day, I was doing seven or eight cases. And so in between cases, I was in my scrubs and ran, went in to see a, a patient. And uh, kind of informal that the patient had walked in. There was three or four family members there. And uh, so uh, at the foot of the bed, I kind of touched her toes and said in Spanish, you know, is there anything, how are you doing, Ms. Sanchez? I forget what her name was. And is there anything I can do for you? And and, uh, she said, no. And she didn't say no doctor, but she just said, no, no, thank you. And and they family member, fella, uh, piped up. He says, you know, could you, uh, he mistook me for the janitor or something. Mm-hmm. And orderly or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Latino and, and Essence said if I could adios to trash can and uh, uh, take it away. So I took the opportunity. Uh, I didn't take umbrage at ignorance. And uh, I took the opportunity. I said, here, here, I'm taking the trash. Come here, walk with me, will you? So I walked out on the highway where they happen to have uh, uh, photos of all the chiefs of staff and the current one was me. So I pointed at that photo. I said, you know, lucky that trash man made it all the way to that position. And so I obviously have used, and obviously he was markedly embarrassed and stuff, but I've always used humor or tried to use humor, someone self-deprecating in order to get by that. I mean, I was one of two uh, Latinos, 800 boys at a, at a Jesuit high school, prep school. 
And so I, I, I allowed humor to, to get me uh, through things. I was not a glad-handing humorous guy, but uh, I just did not. I let it bounce off me uh, that way. I was just to, just to move a little bit, uh, Bill, if that's okay. Grit is very important uh, as 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 I see it, and in fact, I think grit is more important than resilience. And um, there are five characteristics to grit, and that's courage, conscientiousness, perseverance, resi- resilience, and passion. In short, grit is uh, perseverance with passion. And I came across a, uh, something which they use grit uh, as an acronym. G was guts, R was resilience, and uh, I was initiative, and T was tenacity. And I think that these are very, very important uh, things to use as a mantra for yourself if you encounter these uh, problems. The other uh, thing is, and I wanted to ask that of the other P, uh, physician associates, and I really like that term uh, much better and nomenclature better than physician assistant, especially in, in Spanish, um, because uh, <clears throat> if you say physician assistant, they, they think medical assistant, but and that is supervising physician. Your supervising physician should have your back in every aspect. And I say that because I had the same physician associate for 40 years. I know you've been in practice, uh, Jonathan, for 30 years, but for 40 years, I've had this Asian American fellow. He's part of the family uh, for sure. And uh, I always had his back even to the point of firing an associate of mine that I brought in uh, who did not want to abide by the PA uh, scheduling of all five physicians. He says, I'm a a microsurgeon. Why should I do what the PA says? And I said, well, you don't have to. Leave the practice. You're gone. And so you need to have a supervising physician who will back you in every way. And that's the way to, especially to counter stuff. I spoke enough. Thank you for that. And uh, Dr. White, in you, you, it was mentioned that you're an author and I've, I've read your uh, book, Seeing Patients. I haven't had an opportunity to uh, read your most recent book, although it is ordered uh, and hopefully will arrive soon. But uh, in in your book, Seeing Patients, there are a number of different circumstances you encountered in your life where grit and resilience were an important part of how you dealt with uh, certain uh, things that happened or how people saw you or treated you and instructing people and then how to see patients. Can you elaborate on some of those themes for us today? And, and maybe, I don't know if you have an anecdote or an experience in your life uh, where you really needed to uh, use some of that grit and resilience to try and work your way through. And again, advice for our audience and how they may incorporate that or deal with a similar situation. Yes. Well, again, I would encourage- I should have said to... my fellow human, Dr. Gus White. <laughs> well, thank you for that, uh, my friend. 
and yes, I think we all have the potential and the capacity uh, to come forward with varying degrees of uh, grit. Um, and there, there, there are many components to it and there are many iterations of it. Um, I, I had the good fortune of growing up in an environment and having a mom who uh, taught me uh, sort of two, two things at the same time, or maybe more than, more than two things, but uh, to have respect, to respect all people at all times, in all situations. And, uh, and to the extent that you can do that, it actually is, it turns out, I don't know if she figured it out or knew this or how she thought this, but uh, when you're respecting everybody else, uh, somehow people come to respect you. Mm. And, uh, and, and you, as you have respect for others, you have respect for yourself. But uh, she taught me to, so it could never ever be said that I was disrespectful. To, to someone. So I think that's one thing. There are many characteristics though uh, from which people can gain grit and gain the ability to, to resist. And by observing others um, who have that, uh, by picking heroes, uh, you know, we, uh, when I say environment that I grew up in, I think people were very cognizant of of, of who was being respected and not being respected. By that, I mean, black folks were striving for respect and striving to respect each other and striving to deserve respect. Speaking of books, I appreciate people thinking of mine. I also would suggest Stephen Southwick and uh, Spencer, who wrote a book on resilience. And they came out, they interviewed a number of prisoners uh, in, in Hanoi during the uh, Vietnam encounter. And uh, they characterized roughly 10 things that uh, characterize those who survived uh, the post-traumatic stress syndrome and who manifested resilience in the best helpful way. And that's an excellent book. And to look at that and look at some of the things that people thrived on. Um, exercise was one, sort of staying in shape uh, and uh, having uh, people that you can identify to be, be mentors. And there are a number of issues that come forward and allow us to be resilient. I think we should have faith and have confidence in the fact that we do all have tremendous potential and tremendous capacity to push back. And as we're pushing back, though, we want to work within our spheres of influence to try to do the right thing and get other people to do the right thing and to push back so that we can be more humane as we take care of one another and we take care of our, our patients. A couple of you have um, made either direct or to me indirect uh, references to um, what I would describe broadly as mentors or individuals in our lives who were particularly important in terms of helping to shape us or give us some of the tools. Jonathan, you made reference to your mom. I would say uh, in politics, we like to say, if you're not, uh, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Uh, which is just a slightly different uh, way of phrasing what your mom uh, said to you. But um, could each of you perhaps take a moment if there was someone in your life, not not by name, but you know characteristics, and and sometimes uh, also if you could talk 
um, individuals who are mentors may not even know sometimes that they're mentors, you know, but, but you watch the way that they conduct your, themselves and you decide, I want to emulate that individual. So perhaps each of you could talk about someone who uh, served in that role, either consciously or, you know, subconsciously or implicitly. Uh, and, and what were some of the qualities you observed? Dr. Guerrero, um, was there someone in your life who served as a mentor? I've definitely had many mentors, including, and I include people who even mentor you for a conversation. Even Michelle Leak on this call has been served in that capacity to me. I would say that there are two female physicians who pop into my head um, on a professional clinical, professional and research level that really went to bat for me. And, and I, and I mean that um, somewhat um, metaphorically, but more in actuality, because there was um, progress that I want, or there were projects that I wanted to participate in. And because of my um, background, it was out of the box of the norm. And the way I went about it was, I guess, what people now say, you, you do it and then you say sorry later. Um, and even though I wasn't doing that intentionally at the time, in retrospect, it was that one of those situations. And those type of mentors for me um, have been, um, they've been mentors and models, right? And so I think that's important as, as a woman in the healthcare field. And in their case, two women who were very recognizable by name when you said their name and that people clearly had a visceral response when you said their name for better or worse, right? And so being able to stand in that um, and that know, knowing who you are and what you bring to the table and being yourself for, regardless of what these other people, male and female, because I think sometimes um, even in gender issues that sometimes females are complicit in um, sustaining the stereotypes that we're in. Dr. Walker? Sure. Um, you said not to name and I, and I even if I said her name, you probably wouldn't know, but there is a doctor in San Antonio, female uh, physician. And um, I remember when I first met her, she actually was the person uh, who encouraged me to, uh, to be in private practice. I, I can recall having a meeting. The hospital brought me to San Antonio and, and they wanted me to, of course, uh, meet some fellow African-American physicians. And I had a meeting with this lady and her partner and her partner responded to me that she thought I was crazy in this day and time wanting to go into private practice. But this other lady said to me, and it's now been 17 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. She said, uh, oh, I think you can do it. And she said, just know that we would be here for you. You'll fall down and, and scrape your knee, but we'll help you get back up. And I've never forgotten that. And in my time of being in solo practice, I've watched her um, just continue to elevate. And I have to believe that what we give out to other people returns to us. And so as I've watched her continue to climb, I can only think that it's because of what she poured into me and I'm sure so many others. Um, and I also um, learned a quote over just last week, I was in a training and someone used a quote says, comparison is a thief. And I had never heard that before. And um, it really stuck with me. So 
as it relates to um, to role models, I believe in role models wholeheartedly, but I also recognize that we cannot duplicate, you know, what other people do. We can only take what they give or as as you just said, Bill, um, look at them even from afar because I could I take role models from people I don't even know. They don't know that they're role models. I read their books and uh, I, you know, I glean from things that they have to say. And so for sure, I believe it's most important to have role models in our lives, but also recognize that as individuals, uh, we, we don't want to be a many anyone. We just want to glean from what they have to say and offer to us. Dr. Silver, uh, anyone from your life and experience that you'd care to acknowledge or talk about? Absolutely. You know who I'm going to start off with first, and that's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was the biggest role model in the joy of my life. So I'm going to say that first and give her shout outs for that. Um, as a student matriculating through Howard University, I was in the library one day panicking and stressing before a major exam. And um, I saw this young man across the library studying all these books and just had so many books on his table reading. And um, he saw me sitting there sweating bullets. And he came over and asked me, could he help me with something? And I forgot what I was studying. And he made it simpler than what I was reading in the book. Fast forward, he, I saw him in the library. We would speak and say hi. I didn't realize that he was the chief of surgery for Howard University at that time, Dr. LaSalle LaFall. I had no clue who this young man was, but over the years, he would come to the library and ask me if I needed help with anything, or he would, you know, teach a class to my PA uh, cohort. He was one of the biggest mentors and friends, and I'm going to put that in parentheses, in my life going through PA school. And even after I graduated, he hired me because he knew my skill set. He told me to stay here a couple of years and then continue to advance my education. And that's what I did thankfully to him. And I give great shout outs to Dr. LaSalle LaFall for that. Uh, Dr. Jimenez. Sure. And uh, I guess uh, I've had uh, many, many individuals that I have uh, called role models, mentors or so. And I think it's very important to take advantage of that situation as a potential MT, a mentee. But first of all, I think my parents were the perfect combination. Uh, my mother, uh, there's no doubt she loved me, but uh, it was uh, very conditional in the sense that that was just her personality. I came home with all A's, one A minus, and she says to me, uh, mijo, which means my son, oh, why the A minus? So uh, <laughs> that was that's kind of a driver. Uh, there, my dad was uh, unconditional uh, uh, love and, and respect. He he always said, "You will do well. Just keep working." And uh, and I I always had the mantra that if I did as well as my dad did, he came to this country when he was uh, about eleven years old, a uh, hundred years ago, to pick fruit. And he ended up with his master's uh, degree 
due to hard work and continuous night school education, including working uh, 50, 60 hours a week. And he ended up with his master's degree and in, in teaching tool design. Um, in fact, maybe a set of surgical instruments uh, that I still have. But uh, I've always felt if he, if I did as proportionally well, uh, that I would do fine. And uh, so that they were the perfect combo for me. Excellent. Ishmael? Yeah, no, thanks, Bill. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have a plethora of mentors in my life, um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't, I didn't mention my dad as being the most impactful mentor for me. Um, like my dad, he uh, raised me and my sister as a single father. Um, and growing up, seeing like a strong black male influence, um, just getting the job done, never made excuses, um, always gave me unconditional love, unconditional support, had all the resources I need to be, be successful. Um, just seeing him day in, day out, just work and make sure we were good. Um, just seeing that example of, of a mentor just give me, gave me the discipline and, and persistence needed to be successful in anything I wanted to do. So, so I have to be, I would have to give my dad the biggest shout out in terms of helping me get to where I had to go. Dr. White. Thank you. I'm, I'm humbled by your invitation to allow me to comment. And uh, recently, I've been bouncing around in this stuff, as you know, for a while. And recently, I came with kind of a, I was struck with kind of a new idea. And it came from a, a young woman that I was involved with in a CME uh, teaching around healthcare. And uh, she, we talked about the fact that, you know, the racism and all the isms ain't going to go away tomorrow. And we really have to work hard to change those racisms and, and work diligently to do that. And uh, she brought up a point, though. She said, you know, we need to strive as we are working on changing these things and maintaining our resiliency. We need to address the joy, the joy in the process of the struggle to achieve human dignity and equity around issues of health care. And uh, I really I really thought that it really impressed me and, and it got me thinking. I went back and I looked at the World Health Organization and it defines health, uh, not just as the absence of disease and other infirmities, but it defines health as a sense of, of, of well-being mm -hmm. and the absence, not just the absence of disease and, and, and infirmity, but joy, as, as she called it, and I want to call it, of working against the isms while we enjoy uh, good health and, and, and the pleasure of the absence uh, of being away from, from disease. So I just share that with you for whatever it's worth. I, I like it. I think we, we, we want to work like the Dickens and we want to maintain our own uh, equanimity and our own uh, resilience and enjoy the joy of the struggle. Thank you. Uh, Michelle, I turn it back over to you. And I just want to personally thank all of you. It's been very insightful, thoughtful, and uh, given me certainly a lot to think about and hopefully our audience uh, to think about. But Michelle? 
Bill, I do not think that we could wrap it up on a better note than what Dr. White left us with. I love that focus on joy because that sometimes gets lost amidst the struggle, right? So to bring us to that point and have us go away with a full heart, with our heads full of really good knowledge and advice and that mantra to follow the joy, follow your heart. So I think that's a perfect way to end. So I too would like to add my appreciation to each member of our panel. It's, it's our pleasure to have hosted you this afternoon. So thank you. <laughs>